Hello, welcome to Muriel's Murders. I'm Muriel and I love true crime. I'm Nick and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. This week, we start with an announcement. Going forward, we will be releasing brand new episodes on our Patreon. Muriel's Murders Patreon episodes will be a mix of requests, famous cases Nick has never heard of, and cases that I love, but for whatever reason, couldn't add to our main feed episodes. As of now, we're going to continue to put out one Patreon-exclusive episode a month until we reach our very first goal of making $500 a month. Once we reach that goal, we're going to start releasing two episodes a month on our Patreon. Look, Muriel and I have endless goals with this podcast, but for now, we're just going to leave it at that. This week, we're bringing you an example of what will be on our Patreon, the fascinating story of the Pied Piper of Tucson, Charles Schmidt. This Elvis-styled oddball dude led a group of teens down a murderous rabbit hole in the 1960s. Oh my God. Yeah. And <laughs> on our Patreon episode, I taught Nick all about the Black Dahlia. That was scary. Yeah. And uh, I also have a sinking suspicion about this episode. I feel like this one's going to be a doozy too. All right. Hold on to your butt, Nikki. <laughs> this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we'll probably end up using some swear words and joking around. So also, please keep that in mind. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No! Okay, let's get started. I've got a ball of dread forming what? in my stomach. <laughs> I feel like you're going to shoot me in the face. <laughs> I'm not going to do anything terrible to you. I'm going to tell you a story. It feels like that f um, when you're going slowly up a steep incline on a roller coaster mm -hmm. and you're like, I'm not going to die. You're the not, things are on you're not gonna enough. die. I'm not gonna fly out of the People roller have... <laughs> coaster. But you just are like but you feel the dread as if like definitely your demise is right on the other end of this precipice. People have been murdering each other since the dawn of time. So just get over it. Well, okay, ready? Today it'll happen to me <laughs> via not, you. <laughs> okay. What do you got? All right. Picture Tucson, Arizona mm -hmm. in the early to mid 1960s like Ooh. 1960 to 1965 and you know remember the 60s are really exciting so mm -hmm. i just feel like it's worth saying you know nationally in the u.s this was a crazy time for everybody we started the decade with eisenhower and nixon mm -hmm. in the white house and then we gained jfk and lost him in 1963 we ended the decade with two terms of Lyndon Johnson. Mm -hmm. But we would soon join the Vietnam War and we would see the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 would mm -hmm. be signed. So this is this jam-packed decade, right? Right. And I'm just seeing in Tucson, Arizona, some crazy crossover where like hippies are kind of becoming cowboys and cowboys are kind of becoming hippies and smoking dope. But it's so like... So it's not. Ooh. So Tucson at the time was way more like 
prime Americana. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking hippies. We're talking about the more sort of straight-laced conservative version of, of 60s fashion. Okay. And it's still pretty early in the decade, mm-hmm. right? So people are still kind of have these vestiges of like, I don't know, grease Leave lightning. Leave it to oh, okay. You know yeah. what I mean? Like polo shirts and things like that. <laughs> Golf courses. White picket fences. But what's interesting about Tucson mm-hmm. is that it had experienced this major urban boom in the 20 years since World War II. Mm-hmm. So the city grew from 85,000 in the mid-1940s to about 300,000 in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. So it had really exploded. Yeah. And the overflow of people kind of spilled out of Tucson in the form of urban sprawl or suburban sprawl, right? So there are areas of Tucson that are like Leave It to Beaver, right, at this point. But as the city grew bigger and accommodated more and more people, the expansion outward was, you know, more wild, right? Of course it's going to be. And it Mm -hmm. kind of spread out into suburban sprawl and also just strip malls and different things. And then the city would kind of taper out into just straight up desert and cactuses. Uh Uh-huh. That's cool. I kind of seeing it, um, you know how, okay, this is what I'm thinking in the Southwest. When you see like one of those cliffs or one of those amazing rock formations and there's like all the layers yeah. as you could see it get built up and it's like stripey or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm imagining that, but an aerial view of like the city and then it just slowly like tapers out into wildness. Yeah. You know I like, like that. the rings of a tree trunk. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, very very cool. visual. <laughs> right. So that's what we're working with, with mm-hmm. Tucson. So this story is about the teenagers who populated the city during this time and their de facto leader, 20-something Charles Schmid, or Smitty is what they used to call him. That Smitty is a very funny, uh, like kind of like cool sounding name to go from the very uncool sounding name Schmid. I know. It's like a very, they're like, oh yeah, it's Smitty, man. Hey, Smitty, what are you doing? Going down to the water park? Or whatever they do. So there were so uh, many teens in Tucson at the time that the high schools were actually on a split schedule, which I had never heard of. So students would go to school either from 6 a.m. to noon or mm-hmm. noon to 6 p.m. because there weren't enough spaces to accommodate all the kids during one normal day. Wow, and I guess these are the boomers. Yeah. What are these now? Are, who are now the boomers. So like a huge generation of kids, you know. Interesting. Massive. Cool. And on top of that, because it's Arizona, mm-hmm. you have this massive influx of retirees coming in for the weather. Yeah. And that also meant that they clogged the part-time job market. So you know, this massive group of teens who on a split schedule for high school and bored and wanting something to do and in the middle of the desert are also now not able to get part-time jobs. Right, because the guy that tears a stub at the movie theater is a retiree who just needs a part-time job to make ends meet or have a little something to do or whatever. Right, and a lot of these things kind of add to this sort of powder keg culture of of the teenagers in this town Mm -hmm. because it's still like a small town in so many ways, even though it has this big population Mm -hmm. and there's just not a lot to do. You know, the infrastructure is not built up to have it be like, yes, you know, there's all these after school curriculars. It's like there's one roller rink. Right. Well, well, and there's basically like not even enough 
school to accommodate <laughs> sure. the kids, right? right. So it's not like there's all these after school programs or whatever, you know. So basically you got a bunch of bored teenagers looking around be like, well, I guess trouble is our only option. Yeah. So central to the teen life was this place called the Speedway Boulevard. It's a big cruising boulevard in Tucson that's just lined with burger shacks and bowling alleys and dance clubs and bars. And teenagers could get into clubs with these fake IDs. So they would always check IDs, but it was literally like right off of campus. You could buy a $2.50 fake ID like right. anywhere. Yeah. Um, so that was super easy. And as long as they didn't drink, young girls could go to bars without any ID at all. Mm. They could go and listen to music and dance and hang out. <laughs> and in this era of, Sounds trouble. Yeah, it sounds a lot of trouble. Uh, in this era of Tucson, around 50 teen runaways were reported every month to the Tucson Police Department. So there was a massive amount of teen runaways wow. also. yeah. So one of the things these kids used to do is they would hold these big parties way out in the desert called boondockers. And like I said, like Tucson's a little behind the hippie trend and a little more in the mainstream conservative sort of realm of 60s fashion. Mm -hmm. So like if you look at 60s fashion, you can kind of picture go-go dresses, you know, mm -hmm. what those look like, the sort of like A-line dresses. Sometimes they're short. I've watched Austin Powers. Right. I know. That's my main touchstone for all this stuff. So based on the pictures that I've seen from Tucson at the time and from people who knew Charles Schmid, yeah. there would be dresses like that, but they'd be in colors like navy blue and, you know, more conservative so colors. So the teenagers themselves are starting to flirt with like hippie sort of cool whatever cutting edge youth culture but they're still got a old school tucson bent to it right it's still this sort of classic more conservative americana town but there's these kind of outliers and you also have guys wearing polo shirts and jeans and button downs and cardigans right uh -huh. they're not they're not fully in this wild times you know uh hippie movement quite yet yeah they're still preppy a little bit so these boondockers parties are like this we're talking maybe 70 to 100 teenagers out in the middle of the desert in the night, basically tailgating and drinking tons of alcohol. And the girls are like teenage girls with these big beehive hairdos and mm -hmm. these dresses. And the guys are in, you know, white polos and Levi's. Elvis is really hot, you know, in this mm. in this like era, right? So yeah. people are more Elvis than Beatles. You know Got what it. I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and out of... All of this chaos in the desert, out comes the cock of the walk, <laughs> Smitty, <laughs> yeah. right? He's older. He's in his mid-20s. And most of the people we're talking about here are like 15, 16, maybe yeah. 17. So he's an older dude. He's more mature. He drives a really nice car. And he has tons of cash to throw around. His parents have him set up with a $300 a month allowance yeah. um, that he pretends to get from selling drugs, which was not. Oh, true. man. And by the way, $300 a month is the equivalent of over $2,700 just in spending money in today's dollars. Damn. So that's a lot in a small town. Yeah, for sure. That'd be a lot now in LA. I know. He's 
like balling. That'd be sick. I want this guy's parents. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> we'll see how you might turn out. Right. So, oh, no. so Smitty uh, would dye his hair jet black, mm-hmm. just like his idol Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. And given Elvis's relationship with 14-year-old Priscilla, mm-hmm. the two shared their hair color and their preference uh, for the company of young teens. Of children? <laughs> okay, great. So naturally standing about five foot three, Smitty would stuff his boots with three inches worth of smashed tin cans and rags ah. so he could get some height. Well, I, at least he's giving himself some pain. At least it makes it seem like he's really working for it. Well, he would he would smash his boots so full of garbage yeah. that he had to practice walking around his house. And even in sure. the best of times, yeah. he's known. You could see him you know, yards away walking like he has two ill-fitted prosthetic feet like he had a very wobbly sort of <laughs> oh no that like is really so uh, embarrassing and he never left the house without applying a tanned look to his face with thick pancake makeup and he would wear this white tinted lip gloss and then draw a large mole on his cheek that he drew in with an eye pencil to like kind of have like a little badass mole and it's big it's like the size of a dime oh my god which i'm not sure what he got why he thought that was a good idea he was like (laughs) he was also known to like really posture aggressively like elvis Mm -hmm. so he would artificially hold his eyes in a droopy way Mm -hmm. and lift the side of his mouth like elvis you know like that Mm one-sided sneer and he also at times at home would use a clothespin to stretch out his lower lip to try to get juicy lips like Elvis had because he had like a big pouty lip. And the only natural feature that he really worked with were he had these like really bright blue eyes. (laughs) So (laughs) but that wasn't good enough. He couldn't just lead with his baby blues. He was actually a super handsome guy without all that stuff. But but with this stuff it's kind of like a acid trip elvis it's yeah. really <laughs> well i know a few people from my personal life who get a little bit of work done and then become sort of addicted to it yeah. and then really start getting lots of things done yeah, and yeah. this guy sounds like he was doing that yeah it's just like oh i can get away with a tin can thing well i think i'm just gonna fix my skin yeah right how about a huge mole yeah 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 I think that there's a lot of things in here that also show that he's a liar, but he's like a big talker. He also had like a flair for the dramatic. So I would he, say so. Right. And, and meaning like he would be one of those people. I don't like I remember in high school, this used to happen all the time mm-hmm. where some kids would just be like, I always have some sort of like epic melancholy problem. Oh, you know? I was kind of like that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, like just like taking on other people's issues yeah. and making them your own or talking about like, you know, dark, really dark, hard troubles that yeah. you have. What's up, Nick? What's going on? Oh, just really just thinking about the weight of the world over here. Yeah. You, know what I mean? you were like that. It was very <laughs> funny. <laughs> so these are some of the things also that he told young girls. Oh no. Um, he told them that he knew a hundred ways to make love and that he used to teach women how to make love and then they would pay him. And that's part of the reason why he had so much money. He would tell them he sold drugs. Mm -hmm. He said he was a hell's angel. He said he was a very good fighter. (laughs) Uh, And then he also (laughs) told a bunch of girls that he always carried tiny bottles of salt and pepper with him in his pockets to blind his opponents in a fight. (laughs) That's such a giveaway. (laughs) 
<laughs> He's like, I'm a really good fighter. I always carry salt and pepper. <laughs> <laughs> what and he was like really it would have been cooler if he was like you know like an early beyonce always keeping like hot sauce in her bag or right whatever. No, if he no, was no. like nah this bland ass food you got to put salt and pepper on it you know what i mean like the italians <laughs> or some shit no uh he was also really he was not good at school <laughs> at all <laughs> yeah but he was really verbose so he would say a lot of things that are basically word salad, but he uh-huh. would, but he's older, yeah, and he had memorized a lot of like million dollar words or whatever. Yeah. So, one of his favorite sayings. This is a quote. His favorite saying was, "I can manifest my neurotical emotions, emancipate an epicureal instinct, and elaborate on my heterosexual tendencies." Meaning. I think that he's saying like, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm i like really cool and uh-huh. hella like into doing it yeah. <laughs> with girls. Well, elaborating on your heterosexual tendencies to me sounds like being different than heterosexual. It's very, it's a very, I don't think he knows what no, he he's saying. No, he clearly doesn't know But anything. that's like one of his sayings. Yeah. And <laughs> he's, so he'd say that a lot. Yeah, like it, that's what he would just like say to people to kind of buzz them, you know? He, he had to be like, impressive. Yeah, to be impressive. On a way darker note, he was known as really polite. Uh huh. And he was even at school when he was bad at school. He was known as presenting as intelligent, polite, well spoken mm-hmm. to and the he, adults. To the adults who would talk about him later. Yeah. And to kids, if there was a girl who got sick and like had to stay home from school and he heard about it because he basically ran with this massive teenage entourage, mm-hmm. right? He would send her flowers. Mm-hmm. You know, he was this guy who was really well-mannered mm-hmm, mm-hmm. outwardly, but he had some basically like psychopathic tendencies. Yeah. So one of his friends later told the press that when they were all sitting around at his house one time, he tied a rope to the end of the tail of his pet cat mm-hmm. and swung it around and beat it to death against a wall. Oh, in front of people? In front of a crowd of people. And then everybody kind of freaked out. And then he stared at them and he says, you feel compassion. Why? You know, like he's a guru <laughs> sort of, you know? So that's how he used to talk to these teenagers. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, he was this sort of theatrical folk hero to the teens like he's weird but probably one of the only interesting things happening in town and while he didn't really have any friends his own age Mm -hmm. he was just super revered and well liked among this massive younger teenager population do you have any information on what he acted like when he was a teenager? Yeah, a little bit. Okay. Not a lot, though. So in terms of his early life, he was born on July 8th, 1942. Uh-oh. And he That's was... That's my mom's birthday. Oh, really? Not 1942. I was but... going to say, not 1942. Yeah. He was born an illegitimate child in Arizona, and he was adopted by Charles and Catherine Schmid on his first day out of the hospital. So mm-hmm. he only really knew them as parents. Mm-hmm. And his adopted parents were fairly well off. They owned and operated the Hillcrest Nursing Home in Tucson, which brought in a ton of cash. His parents did divorce at some point in Schmidt's childhood, and Catherine became a single mother, but it didn't really affect his lifestyle. His dad was still involved in his life. In Mm -hmm. fact, I think his dad bought him 
one of the really nice cars that he drove and like a really nice motorbike. So they were yeah. all still involved. They still all worked at the nursing home. Mm-hmm. And like I said, he was generally super bad at school, but known for being intelligent and polite. He was actually, despite his size, he was an excellent athlete. Mm-hmm. And he led his high school gymnastics team to state championships. So he was the star athlete in the high school when he went there. And yeah. he never got into any sort of measurable trouble in his early years. But senior year, he quit the gymnastics team and then was suspended for stealing tools from the welding class. Uh-huh. And after his suspension, he just never went back. He dropped out of school and didn't go. So he's never graduated from high school. Huh. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the culture was back then, but also gymnastics is not like a tough guy sport. Yeah, right. So he might have been coming into some sort of identity that he didn't want. Yeah, he wanted to steal welding equipment and like build a hot rod or something. Something. I mean, I think the pictures of him as a gymnast, he looks like this really fresh-faced, very young boy who's smiles really big with lots of teeth, you know, really goofy big smile. And then senior year... All he does is sort of brood. So all the pictures, there's no smiling, there's staring, you know, kind of sexy lips, tons of makeup. So he definitely made- Oh, he started doing the makeup in high school. He did it like during this transition. Yeah. God, I have so much compassion for that. It's just so hard to know who you are as a high schooler. Yes. And one day you're like doing backflips and smiling too cheesy and the next day you're- just you know, acting like a badass from like the wrong side of the tracks I or whatever. Know, killing all your joy. Yeah. So his mom set him up on a little back house on their property and his parents paid all his bills. They paid mm-hmm. his car note you know, or his car insurance. They paid for his gas. They paid for his rent. They paid mm-hmm. for his food. So they paid for everything. And then on top of that, gave him a damn near $3,000 in spending money a month. Yeah. So it was like he was set up really, really well. He never had to work. Yeah. He basically worked occasionally part-time in the retirement home in exchange, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem like he spent a lot of time there. And he had three best friends, and they were all sort of outcast older teens, maybe 19, 18 to 19. Mm-hmm. We had Paul Graff, John Saunders, and Richie Bruns. And aside from that, Schmidt had tons of just teen girlfriends. So he had an Mm -hmm. entourage. He dated tons of girls at the same time. Mm -hmm. And he spent most of his time either hosting blowout parties in this little back house for teenagers or just cruising the speedway in his his car and just watching people. Mm -hmm. God, it just is so sad because when you first explained the world of this, I was like, that sounds so fun. It's so easy to romanticize that era. Yeah. And like, just it sounds so fun. And then you zoom in on this one guy who's just faking everything about himself to stand out in this world and suddenly you're like, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> it's so sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. I mean, I think the kids, I just remember like being that age and having older friends, yeah. you know, and then getting to the point where I was older, like their age and then yeah. realizing how different it is to be somebody who spends all your time with young people, you know, like y- people that much younger. Cause it's not yeah. that much of a difference between obviously like, 
38 and 33. You right, know what I mean? Totally. That's five years. It's yeah. not that big of a difference. But the difference between a 15-year-old and the way that they see the world. And a 20-year-old. And, or, and we're talking with him. He's 23. Yeah, you know? right. Like a 15-year-old and a 23-year-old, you know, is really such developmentally such a different era totally i mean i hung out with older people but if i did that i was always the one young one right yeah yeah i think i was too but it's just funny thinking about it because you do give age such the benefit of the doubt when you're that age because it's what you want to be you're 15 and you want to be 21 and you want to have a cool car and you want all this kind of stuff and you it's hard to look at people who are older and not see just the benefit of age you know like to not to give them a lot of credit for things that are basically biological totally so one of the girls in the town her name was aline rowe her mother norma rowe did not like her 15 year old daughter's new friends Mm -hmm. so one of those friends was their neighbor a neighbor girl who was 19 years old named mary french and mary had started coming around a lot more often. So she would sit in the Rose backyard and smoke cigarettes with Aline and talk about boys. And that's one thing that's shocking. It's like this time all the little kids were smoking cigarettes. Yeah, it right. was super normal. And that was like not the issue. She's not mad about that aspect. Of right. It. But she was like, why is this 19 year old girl now all of a sudden so chummy with my 15 year old daughter? Yeah. She was a really innocent kid, you know, so it just felt a little off. And then, she would watch them through the window and they would mm-hmm. kind of talk about boys and giggle and stuff. But yeah. Norma Rowe is just like, I don't know what's going on with this girl. And with Mary French came these two older boys. Mm-hmm. There was a super skinny, awkward John Sanders. And then this makeup clad, tin can booted Charles Schmid. And she had a bad feeling about both boys, but particularly Charles Schmid. She recalled later how Schmidt had come to her house looking for Aline at some point. Mm -hmm. And when she told him she wasn't home, he stared her down in this really psychotic way. Right, in a, I'll tie your cat to the end of a rope and smash it. Right, like this weird beat where he's just staring at her, wearing these tin cans and just being a total weirdo, you know? I can't help but just see the face from Saw, whatever that is, Jigsaw. I can show you his face. I definitely want to see it. Also, okay. what's the girl's name? Aline? Yeah, it's A-L-L-E-E-N. It's kind of a pretty name. I thought so too. Okay, let me show you his picture. So oh, wow. that's his picture. Yeah. What do you see? Well, what's the prosthetic thing on his nose? When he was finally arrested, mm-hmm. he had been wearing this plaster cast on his nose because he said he got into a fight, but mm-hmm. it didn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean... I mean, I I don't know where this story is going. He looks crazy. (laughs) So that's true. I don't know what else to say. I mean, he does kind of look tough, to be honest. Like the mole thing and everything that you're saying seems so put on that it almost seems like real scars in a way. Yeah, (laughs) he he has that look. And then this is the picture of him as a gymnast. Oh, he's so cute. He has like the Eddie Munster yeah. Kind of hairdo. Yeah, he really does look like that, huh? Yeah, really fresh faced. I mean, later on when he was older in these pictures with the mole, yeah. you see this guy, he's kind of got a pug nose. He's got a square sh- set jaw, yeah. really deep set eyes, dark eyebrows, this jet black hair, yeah. and he's pouting. He's got both of his lips kind of poked out in this sort of artificial pout. Yeah. 
But then picture that guy dressed up like Elvis with right. these knee-high boots on and not being able to like walk straight I know, I know, it's just an like a really odd combination yeah i know yeah so anyway i wanted you to see him and just for a little treat for myself i'm also picturing that guy showing off for the girls by doing like the splits and other gymnasts <laughs> that is a treat for yourself <laughs> that's just a little treat for me so back to Aline Rowe. she was 15 years old she was a good student she was a good reader she was according to her mom, had a lot of that great sort of teen angst, but she's a really innocent girl. So she mm-hmm. wasn't going around, you know, having these fits. She would take long walks in the desert to think about her life. Yeah, she's she, being a little emo. Yeah, she's a little emo. And she wanted to go to college to become an oceanographer. She told her mother if she died, she wanted to be reincarnated as a cat. You know, like they would sit around and talk. And no- yeah. Norma was a single mom. So mm-hmm. she and Aline were really close. You know, they spent a lot of time together. Yeah. On the evening of May 31st, 1964, oh, no. Norma had a night shift at the hospital where she worked as a nurse. And Aline was one of those kids who had the 6 a.m. classes, the 6 a.m. to noon slot. So she would always go to bed early. She had planned to go to bed early. Aline and Norma watched the Beatles on TV and kind of goofed around for a little while. And then Aline took a bath and went to bed around 9 p.m. Norma had her shift, her night shift. So she checked in on her at 9.30 before heading to the hospital. And then she just leaves. Mm -hmm. And when she left, Aline was sleeping. So the next morning, Aline's bed was empty, as usual, when Norma woke up. It's normal because she would leave before Norma would get back from the uh, hospital. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until Aline didn't come home that afternoon that Norma became worried. Oh, no. Norma called Aline's school and found out she hadn't attended any classes that day, which is super out of character for her. She's like a really school-oriented kid. So Mary French later testified at Schmidt's murder trial that he had often talked about wanting to kill Aline specifically by crushing her head with a rock out in the desert. So he was kind of obsessed with that and would talk about it a lot. And a little bit after 9.30 on May 31st, Mary French went up to Aline's window and tapped on the bedroom window until she could wake her up. Mm -hmm. And then she invited her out desert drinking with Schmidt and John Saunders. She was like, she was like, I'm dating Schmidt and John Saunders doesn't have a girlfriend and he wants a date. So the three of them went out to the desert. They got into um, Schmidt's car and went out into the desert. So John Saunders for his part was like a bad student. He was constantly bullied in school and in turn, tended to bully younger kids. That's Mm -hmm. what he was known for. He had really terrible allergies, asthma, and he was also just constantly in minor trouble. Nothing big, but just kind of a bully and, Mm -hmm. you know, a 'er ne'er-do-well. He, there was this weird story about him. When he was a baby, he had really bad allergies. So he had these itchy hives. And when he was a baby, he would scratch himself and he'd get these terrible scabs. Those parents used to tie his arms and legs to the bars of his crib when they put him down to go to sleep until he would stop scratching himself. But then after that, it was this weird thing where he couldn't go to sleep unless he was tied up. He got used to it. So it was just as that is like one of those things you hear about 
you know, like there's this generation of people that produced all the serial killers. <laughs> and then it's like, you go and like, oh, how did they raise the kids? It's yeah. like, well, we yelled at him a lot and then tied him to the crib. And you're like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and of course, all these psychos came out of this generation. Oh, oh, I'm dying. I'm dead. I'm dead. I'm dead. Mary French was a high school dropout also. And, you know, she was kind of chubby. She was not like a particularly pretty girl and she was super in love with schmidt you know mm-hmm. so knowing that schmidt dated tons of young girls marries this 19 year old which is old for him yeah and he always kind of kept her around yeah so they all pile into the car and they drive out to golf links road a super remote area in the desert surrounded by cactus and chola cactus and stuff and really deserted nearby off golf links road is this flat patch of sand called a wash in the desert. I think it's like where like water runoff happens when it rains. Mm -hmm. So it's these like flat patches that are really hard Mm -hmm. and sandy and not a lot of stuff grows on them. So that's Schmid's drinking slash makeout spot. And the foursome walked out to the sandy patch and they sat there talking for a while at night. And then Schmid and Mary leave Saunders and Aline. Aline out in the desert and walk back to the car. And as they're walking back to the car, they hear Aline scream. Mm-hmm. So Mary stands there and Schmidt turns around and he kind of heads back to where the couple have been sitting. And Mary, for her part, walks back to the car. She gets in the front seat and she turns on the radio and she doesn't move. And a while later, Saunders comes back up to the car to tell Mary that Schmid wanted her. And Mary just straight up refuses to go back to the sand patch. She already knows. She knows. And a while later, Schmid comes back to the car all jacked up and he grabs Mary and he says, we killed her. I love you so much. And... The three of them walk back to the sand patch and Mary sees Aline's body lying. She's lying on her back. She's covered in blood. And they sit there and take turns digging into the super hard ground until they were able to kind of dig out a shallow grave. And that's where they buried Aline's body. And no one would find her body for three years out in the desert. Those motherfuckers. Yeah. God damn it. So... Tucson police did a little investigative work, but they were largely dismissive of Norma Rowe because they counted Aline Rowe as among the 50-something runaways they had every month in Tucson. She's 15. They see it all the time. And They're this just is actually, dismissing these poor mothers. Well, I mean, this is this was really common. I think the um, it was true with, I think, the Atlanta child killings. Like, around this time. Yeah. And, you know, in the decades, a couple decades before, it's just kids lived a really different life and they disappeared all the time. And now people are realizing like serial killers just had a heyday, you know, like there were a lot of abductions and murders at the time of kids because there was just, nobody was tracking them and people were just like, Oh, they're runaways. Like that just became the label for kids disappearing. Damn. And also there were a lot of runaways. It was just a different life. Yeah. Kids would just drop out and move out and go do something else. You right, know? go they, to San Francisco and yeah. try acid or whatever the hell was going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was definitely of the time. And 
Norma, for her part, immediately pointed police to Charles Schmid. And police did bring him in for questioning, but they had to release him because he didn't admit anything and they didn't find anything to hold him, anything substantial. After getting nowhere with the local police, Norma is on the warpath. She wrote the FBI. Mm -hmm. She wrote the state attorney general. She even consulted a psychic and she would tail Schmid as he drove through Tucson. Good for her. Yeah. And she started interviewing Aline's friends with a tape recorder. So she was going around trying to collect evidence to do anything. She, in her heart, basically thought that Aline was dead. Mm-hmm. Schmidt had killed her and Schmidt had buried her in the desert. She knew, right? She knew yeah. immediately. And even the psychic was like, Aline is buried out there in the desert. Wow. Yeah. Have they made a movie out of this? No. This woman's a hero. She's a hero. I mean, she was really... She was so aggressive, the police started labeling her as like a crackpot. And she was like, all right, well, if no one's going to help me, I'm just going to keep looking for my daughter. Yeah. You know. Now, Mary, Paul, and Schmid all seem relatively unbothered by the killing. Aside from Schmid's bragging, I don't think anyone said a lot about Eileen's murder. But what do you mean, aside from his bragging? He did tell people i think he told Mm -hmm. people close to him and i think he bragged about it but it's one of those things because he's kind of outrageous and a liar like yeah people didn't take it completely seriously totally but he basically turned around and just kept burning through teen girls he sort of reinvented himself after aline's murder and decided he was really into blondes that's what he wanted so he started dyeing the hair of girls that he was dating to make them blonde And he also came up with a scheme to steal money from girls by buying cheap glass engagement rings and asking them to marry him. Mm -hmm. So he snagged Mary French and then another 15-year-old girl named Kathy Marath. Mm -hmm. And his plan was to get each of the girls to become engaged to him and then open a joint bank account with him so he could jack all their money. And Kathy Marath sidestepped this dumbass idea and ended up throwing her ring in Schmidt's face during this dramatic breakup. But old Mary French definitely opened that account and ended up funding Schmidt's purchase of a new tape recorder. (laughs) Kathy Marath rebounded briefly with Schmidt's friend, 18-year-old Richie Bruns. Mm -hmm. And Richie was this extremely thin guy. He was always in trouble. He spent years in reformatory school and ended up dropping out of school in the 10th grade. And he was head over heels for 15-year-old Kathy Mraz. Mm -hmm. Now, while that sort of love affair was happening, Schmid met a girl named Gretchen Fritz. So she was a 17-year-old girl, and Gretchen was the daughter of a prominent Tucson surgeon. So she was blonde, high society, and described by one of her teachers at her private school as, quote, erratic, subversive, and a psychopathic liar. Mm. So she got kicked out of private school after she tried to rob a liquor store with some friends. And that's With a gun? Of- uh, she was, like, assisting. I think they tr- mm. they were unsuccessful. I think it was a... <laughs> Very poorly. Okay. So she's not a good psychopath. No, she's just, I don't even know if she was a psychopath. Yeah. I'm sure like back then in a private school in Tucson, anybody who was, I think she got in trouble for wearing a beatnik style dress, beatnik style dress to prom. She's a psychopathic liar. Right. Yeah, so okay. I don't know. I don't know All what right, the truth was in sure. that. Now he met Gretchen in a solidly creepy way. He liked to troll public pools to watch 
young girls mm-hmm. like play in these public pools. So he would go and watch them kind of like um, Raging Bull. That's how. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you remember that? Yeah. I love that movie. <laughs> yeah. I you know, I mean, I think in also that era, there was a couple like really high profile marriages mm-hmm. that were similar between celebrities and very young teens. Mm-hmm. So. Elvis Presley married or got together with Priscilla when she was 14 mm-hmm. and Jerry Lee Lewis, I think in 1957, I believe married his 13 year old cousin. Right. So those were people that yeah. were definitely doing things like that publicly when Schmidt was growing up. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was definitely a thing that was happening a lot more often. than. And I think now. a lot of people alive today's their grandparents story might, revolve around an older guy check you know maybe checking out a younger woman at a swimming pool or right that type right of thing. but yeah so it, it yeah. does feel kind of like this classic early american thing but i'm glad we're out of that phase now <laughs> <laughs> i will just say i'm just glad we moved past that jesus christ or at least most of us uh, but the way he actually met her right is he saw her at this pool when he was scoping it out yeah. then he stalked her back to her house Mm -hmm. and then once she went inside he walked up and knocked on her door when Mm -hmm. she answered he looked surprised and he used that don't i know you from somewhere line (laughs) to be honest his actions sound like the lyrics of a song from that era yeah yeah, you know how the oldies be like i saw your little girl you were at the pool (laughs) then i followed you home and i brought you some flowers yeah right i mean it almost could be a lyric from today's music just with a lot of auto-tune yeah well at any rate we sound old uh these two became boyfriend and girlfriend shortly after uh-huh. that Schmidt did not stop seeing other girls but I think that she became his main girl mm-hmm. right and apparently Richie Bruns could not stand Gretchen he testified at Schmidt's trial that Gretchen and Schmidt were always really jealous and fighting you know it started with simple things like Gretchen threw a bottle of shoe polish at Smidge's car and he's super mad. Or once she saw him hanging out with other girls at his house, so she got out of her car to yell at him and Schmid climbed up a tree to get away from her. But then it did escalate. Uh, according to Richie, Schmid really loved Gretchen, mm-hmm. but would definitely call her a whore a lot. Nice. And at one point he wrote a letter to the Tucson Health Department saying Gretchen was a public health hazard and was spreading STDs around town. Damn. Wrote a letter. That's old school, man. But he would also desperately try to impress her. Brun said that Schmid's crazy ass shot holes in his car windows so he could tell Gretchen that gangsters had shot up his car. So he watched him like shoot out some. <laughs> <laughs> why so she would have sympathy for him yeah or something they were like oh i got away from the gangsters and she'd be like oh my god you're so cool but uh. on august 16th 1965 gretchen took her 13 year old sister wendy to the drive-in and then was never seen again oh, no. neither girl so neither Schmid, of the girls yeah schmidt had tried to break up with gretchen earlier in the summer and according to richie bruns Gretchen at that point threatened to go to police to tell them about Aline's murder because mm-hmm. Schmidt doesn't keep his mouth shut. If he feels like saying it, he says it. So she says, if you break up with me, I'll write you out for Aline's murder. And Gretchen had driven her sister Wendy over to Schmidt's house before the drive-in movie where as they were hanging out, Schmidt snapped and strangled Gretchen to death first. 
and then strangled her little sister because her little sister wouldn't calm down. Yeah. Right. She's 13. So he, and you murdered someone in front of her. Ed is in his house? Right. It's in his house. So he then takes their bodies. He puts them in the trunk of their little red car and then drove them out to his drinking spot where he kind of just dumped them on the ground. The ground is too hard for him to dig. And he mm-hmm. just dumped them out on the desert and left and then ditched her car at a local motel. So for a second time, a parent suspected Schmidt. Yeah. And again, the police suspected a runaway case. Yeah. So Gretchen's dad was a surgeon. He was super wealthy. So he was able to hire a PI who found her little red car behind the local motel, but Mm -hmm. he didn't really find anything else. So around two weeks after the Fritz girls disappeared, Bruns, Richie Bruns and Schmidt were hanging out at Schmidt's house when two scary looking guys in suits abducted them from the house and took them to a, an apartment to a private meeting with a bunch of shady dudes who what? basically grilled them about the Fritz girls. Uh, so the surgeon hired some muscle to come in here and be like, beat these motherfuckers up and get some information out of them. So Bruns in the meeting, he says he didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. And Fritz was a really convincing liar. So mm-hmm. Fritz told them he heard the girls ran off to California. And after grilling them for a while, interrogating them, the men dropped Bruns and Schmid off back at Schmidt's place. And when they were safe in the back house, Schmidt turns to Bruns and he says, you know, do you know who those guys were? And he says, listen, dude, we have just been abducted by the mafia. So the guys are sitting in the apartment and Schmidt says, I know these guys, I know their faces, trust me, I run drugs, I know they're from the mafia. And they're both freaked out. So Schmidt decides to call the local branch of the FBI to report being threatened by the mob. So Bruns is sitting there watching him call the FBI and he's getting nervous given that now he's pretty sure Schmidt had killed the girls. Yeah. Because Schmidt had actually bragged to him before about killing them and throwing their bodies in the desert. But Richie Bruns claimed that he thought Schmidt was kind of joking right i mean obviously this guy knows schmitty doesn't sell drugs or get shot at by gangsters or any of the other things he's seen the lies right so maybe joking is a dumb word that's the word they use but it's like maybe he's like oh he's blowing smoke you know he's lying or whatever it's like i hang out with this guy all the time don't ask me why he lies about everything right but he definitely knew that Schmidt claims to have murdered Aline in the desert also, yeah. and Aline has disappeared. Right. So either Schmidt is taking credit for murdering all of these runaways that are constantly like flowing through the police department, yeah. or he's a serial killer. Right. And watching him call the FBI just feels like a really bad choice to <laughs> He's like, this is just... Super weird. So he hangs up with the FBI. I think he ended up calling the local branch and they weren't open. So I guess back then you could actually call the federal, like a federal office where like J. Edgar Hoover was. And then he was (laughs) able to get someone on the phone to report being attacked by this mob. I'm sure you can't even call the FBI now. They probably, they're not listed. I mean, how would you even call the FBI at this point? I think you can, I think there are reporting lines, Uh but like back then there were like more direct lines. Yeah, totally. You know, it was just just wild to me. They hadn't realized people would prank call or call the FBI because like, 
their stupid brother like stole their teddy bears. Well, and remember, like FBI is not that old at this point. Mm. You know, it wasn't like like at this point it's been around for you know, I don't know, Did seventy math. years or something okay, like that. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it started in the forties. So, anyways, but this guy is realizing like, oh, I get it. This guy's a total idiot. Yeah, or at least like this is really escalating fast, and now I know a bunch of information. Mm-hmm. So. Richie is also not a super smart dude. None <laughs> of these right. guys are like yes. rocket scientists. Yeah. So he thinks the way to solve this sort of escalating situation is to get Schmidt to drive him out into the desert and rebury the girls. He's like, <laughs> you did it really bad. Yeah. Let's go out there. So they went, they drove out, they got a hamburger, they ate the hamburger, and then they drove out to the desert. And Schmidt takes Richie to his drinking place and they park the car and they get out and literally just on the ground are these two girls, their bodies. God damn, man. Like I, a psycho strangling people is horrific. Obviously like murdering someone is terrible, but then just later being like, Oh, here are their rotting dead bodies in the middle of the desert. That is, I don't know why. Why is that to me? That's, I, uh, well, you're talking about a serial killer. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about somebody who has a piece of their, like a psychopathic right. brain is wired in a different way. You know, <sighs> you have a different, um, gosh, there's this really good, if anybody out there is listening, there's a really good This American Life episode called The Psychopath Test that I just mm-hmm. listened to. And it's essentially about the way that psychopathic brains are wired differently than a neurotypical brain. So, one of the things that happens with the psychopathic brain is they just don't feel stress and Mm. panic Mm. and fear in the way that a neurotypical brain does. Yeah. The idea is I've actually been really into this. I mean, this is super dumb of me to talk about it. I'm not going to get too far into it, Uh but the idea is that there were a bunch of tests that were developed to um, run on inmates um, when they kind of figured out this, difference in brain function between psychopathic brains and and neurotypical brains and that test people still use today to determine whether or not someone would be a a re-offender because Mm -hmm. this there's a higher rate of people with high scores in the psychopathic test in the prison population than there are in the normal population Mm -hmm. and the problematic thing about that is that as we learn more about the brain and about people we realize that there is a big difference between the function of the brain, but there's a lot depends on the nurture of the brain. Mm -hmm. So just because you have that brain does not mean that you will be a violent offender. Right. But there are things that can happen to you that will exacerbate, you know, your ability to be a a violent offender. And then there's lots of things that cropped up that are problematic about these tests they give inmates because of, you know, it's, it's a really interesting debate. Yeah. Right. But anyway, the idea is what you're talking about more than likely is someone who just doesn't actually physically have the ability to get scared or worried or freaked out about bodies in a desert. Like it's a, it's a nothing thing. They just don't (laughs) have those feelings. Right. But they do have the feelings to inflict the pain and kill someone. I think some of it, you know, I mean, we don't know. I'm just speculating, but some of the people talk about how he's just interested in killing. It's a thrill killing. It's an interesting thing to do. Yeah. So it's a, it's something that he it feels compelled to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just interesting to talk about the difference between Richie Bruns 
and mm-hmm. Schmidt in the desert where Richie Bruns is having like a meltdown. Right. And Schmidt is like, I don't know, I left them out in the desert. Yeah, totally. You know, so they take the shovel out and uh-huh. they try to dig a grave, but the the ground is just too hard mm-hmm. and they give up. They don't think it's worth it. So they each take the legs of the girls and uh, they drag them way far out in the desert and they leave them out. They try to kind of be like, okay, well, we'll clear out the drinking spot so people don't see it's that obvious. And then they leave them out in the desert. Yeah. So according to Richie, Schmidt told him that the day after they moved the bodies, when Schmidt was alone in his house, the mob actually stopped by the house again and kidnapped him and took him to California. Schmidt said the mob forced him to fly her for the girls in California and I guess forced him to pretend to be an FBI agent. He was detained in San Diego and he has a record of detention for impersonating an FBI officer, but he was kind of held and then quickly released Mm -hmm. and then returned back to his house. We don't know whether or not this was the mafia, but we do know that he, at the time he said, was in San Diego in trouble for impersonating an FBI officer. Yeah. And that he was removed from Arizona to California and then back to his house. And when he got back to his house, he's just, he is more freaked out, right? He returned to Tucson and he smashed up his house. He like destroyed his little back house. And then he was running around in his underwear at night screaming, God is going to punish me. And after that, he hastily married a 15 year old girl that none of his friends had even met. Like he, they didn't know who she was. Weird. So he's kind of going through he's, yeah. something, right? Right. Then we sort of are escalating to the undoing of this whole thing. So we're going to go back to Kathy Marath. Remember her? Mm-hmm. So that's Schmidt's former 15-year-old fiance and current love of Rishi Brun's life. Mm-hmm. So Richie was really intense and Kathy Marath pretty quickly broke it off with him for just being a weirdo. Yeah. And after the breakup, Richie was really obsessed. He sent a 24 page love letter to her and he started a novel dedicated to his darling, Kathy. (laughs) He sent her like packets of poems that he wrote Mm -hmm. and he totally freaked her dad out. Her parents were just like, what is going on? Mm -hmm. Shortly after Schmid's alleged mob abduction, Kathy Moran's house was broken into. Someone had cut the screen door and prowled around inside the house. And they didn't catch the prowler, but they found the screen door cut and some things like moved around. Mm -hmm. Richie was convinced it was Schmid, that Schmid had decided that Kathy Morath was his next victim. And he was trying to murder Kathy. And Kathy's family was convinced it was Richie stalking Kathy. So Richie came up with a plan. Instead of going to police to tell them about the three girls that Schmid had recently murdered, he was going to make a big production out of guarding Kathy's house and terrify her family. <laughs> so Richie walked up and down Kathy's oh, block no. from yeah. sunrise to sunset. Yeah. He stood in the alley behind her house and watched her house. He would jump in his car and tail her every time she left the house and Kathy's parents were just didn't know what to do. They called police yeah. and the police grab Richie and they're like, hey, man, you can't just loiter around Kathy's house. 
So Richie went home and got his dog and then proceeded to give his dog eight, nine hour walks in front of Kathy's house. So just, I'm walking my dog. Yeah. Problem you know, solved. Again, a few tweaks and this could be a romantic love song from the era. I know. Just being a lady is hard, you know? So finally, this is all during the summer. Mm-hmm. Finally, Richie's arrested in October for harassment and because Richie still hadn't told anyone why he was terrorizing Kathy Morath, like they're not together. Yeah. Nobody knows why he's there. And he's just like obsessively stalking her. Yeah. And he's not explaining why. Mm-hmm. So at a sentencing, the judge was just kind of like, get out of town until you can act like a normal person. Mm-hmm. He didn't put him in jail. He just said, you need to leave town. Which I was like, what? What's such a weird <laughs> yeah, solution? Go, go do this to someone elsewhere. Yeah, just get, get out of here. Get your head straight. You're a poor guy. You're uh-huh. in love. You know, come back when you can act like a normal person. Uh-huh. So Richie Burns takes off to Ohio to stay with his grandparents. And one night he's in the kitchen with his grandma and he gets really drunk and he tells his grandmother everything. Oh no! And his grandmother looks him in the eye and is like, you're drunk and you're a liar. <laughs> and it was something like that moment yeah. just kind of woke him up yeah. and it was, he snapped into focus and he was like saying this out loud. This is completely insane. And yeah. he called the police department and told them everything. Yeah. That's so interesting. Just, okay, grandma, I'm drunk, but I'm going to be completely real. This is my honest truth. And at the end of it, grandma's like, there's no possible way that's honest. Yeah. I get why that could totally rewire your brain. Yeah. Yeah. He was just like, bow. And then he was like, okay, I got it. So he talked to the Tucson police. He convinced the police to put Kathy Marath in protective custody, which Mm -hmm. if you were Kathy and you didn't know what was going on, it's like, no, this guy is putting me in custody. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You know, that was pretty wild. And then he grabbed the cops and he led them to the bodies of the Fritz girl. So Mm -hmm. Aline's body still wouldn't be found until 1967, but they did find the two Fritz girls. Yeah. And, John Saunders and Mary French had both fled, but were easily found and arrested. I think Mary was found in Texas and John was found in in another part of the state. And then police arrested Schmidt in his yard. He was wearing a full face of makeup. He had his tin can stuffed boots on and that five month old plaster cast on his nose. And they hauled him into the police station and booked him. John Saunders and Mary French both pled guilty. Mary got five years and Saunders got life. And at the trial, it came out that aside from the people directly involved, so we were talking John Saunders, Mary French, Richie Bruns, and then the uh, Gretchen Fritz knew for sure. So those Mm -hmm. are like the four people who were involved. There were also six other high schoolers who knew basically the full details of the case. Yeah. Those six definitely told other people. Yeah. So this collection, this entourage of people that hung out with Schmid and his friends, like all knew the story and kids were coming forward being like, yeah, I mean, he did it. And I mean, we heard he killed Aline, but I mean, it's done now. So what's, so, right. why would we do anything? We just, it's not like lives. he's going to keep doing that to other people. <laughs> what the fuck (laughs) i guess i mean to me it just the whole thing reeks of a time in which that type of horrible behavior was 
thought to be truly impossible or something like no one believes him no one wants to believe that these girls are murdered it's just so obvious to everyone that some other truth accounts for what's going on that right. they're like well he's not going to kill more people or like he bragged about killing her but that's not true and the cops are like oh I'm sure they just ran away and the grandma's like you're lying right this was definitely moving towards like people's awareness of serial killers yeah but I mean they still didn't have a great frame of reference people yeah. just thought you killed for a reason you know, for a long time. They yeah. didn't really think of it as being like, you kill for passion, you kill for greed, you kill for anger. Yeah. You know, the idea that you just kill or kill multiple times, like it's not just this one bad thing you did in your life. It's right. just something that we hadn't really discovered, which is interesting because that's so late in human history to kind of have a <laughs> giant country with an FBI and like police departments that have people still yeah. be like, well, you know, that doesn't make any sense. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's yeah. like people have been doing this for so long. Right. <laughs> you know, I don't know. The Black Dahlia is such an interesting case because people were just like, what? <laughs> what? You're going to have to tell me that Black Dahlia case. I'm at some going point. to. Okay, yeah, cool, yeah. Cool, I, cool. I will for sure. And you've never heard it, right? No. It's wild AF. And yeah. I will definitely tell you. I've, I've, right. I've listened to a lot of podcasts about that. They're very interesting. Okay. So, Schmidt was convicted of the murders of the Fritz girls and got the gas chamber. Mm -hmm. But at some point, Arizona, for a brief time, ended the death penalty in the state. So his sentence was commuted to 50 years. Mm -hmm. And when he was sentenced, his 15-year-old wife cried during the sentencing. It was the only noise was her sobbing in the court. You know, at one point, too, his mom had testified that she was really angry when he started hanging out with Gretchen because Gretchen had a bad reputation and was like tr crashing Gretchen at the trial <laughs> and then talking about how like she goes, I remember, you know, when I first heard about Gretchen's disappearance, I told Charles that it was lucky he was home with me that night. You mm -hmm. know, like trying to give him an alibi in court. So mm -hmm. she really hung in there with this yeah. guy. The biggest drama was that right during the sentencing portion of the trial, Schmid came up to the bench before he was sentenced and called his trial a mockery of justice and then demanded to be injected with truth serum so they could see that he was innocent. Was that a real thing at the time? Truth serum is a different name. It's like known as truth serum. Yes, it was a thing, but uh -huh. I mean, like it doesn't work like that. And also <laughs> that's not... Like they have evidence. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I don't know what he's thinking. So Schmid was incarcerated in the Arizona State Prison until his death. In the early 1970s, Schmid started writing poetry and sending it to a professor, Richard Shelton, at the University of Arizona, who actually came out and said it was pretty good. I yeah. couldn't find any copies, but I just thought that was interesting. And then uh, What Schmidt, was he a professor of? Uh, literature. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they just like, he was like, I don't like to write poems. He's like, damn, these are good poems. Yeah. Schmidt ended up escaping from prison twice, once for about three hours until he was found crammed in a small locker. Mm -hmm. And then the second time in 1972, he escaped with another triple homicide murderer and he was captured about three days later in a train yard in Arizona wearing a blonde curly wig. Uh-huh. And that was kind of an interesting thing. I couldn't find very much about what happened, but apparently yeah. he took four people hostage and kept them hostage on a ranch for a little while. 
and then tried to escape and ended up going back to prison. Yeah. So on March 10th, 1975, Schmid was stabbed 20 times by three inmates with homemade shivs. Mm -hmm. He lost his eye and died of a blood infection 10 days later at the age of 33. His mother was there at his deathbed and chose to have him buried in the prison cemetery to keep people from defacing his grave. And according to Wikipedia, his body was briefly stolen from the prison morgue, but was found shortly afterwards. I couldn't find anything about that anywhere else. So we'll just call that a soft Wikipedia fact. (laughs) Soft Wikipedia fact. Yeah, maybe Father Fritz tried to pay someone to get the body. I feel like the father is the one that hired the... The, the quote-unquote mob, right? Yeah, yeah I'm guessing, sure. but nobody knows if it even existed. Like, nobody knows. It's oh, just like Schmidt. it might not have happened at all. Or it might yeah. have happened, but, I mean, it could definitely not be the mafia. But I'm sure it wasn't the... Yeah, I mean, but they maybe, were there. They were yeah. in Arizona. Like, we yeah. just did, uh, you know, our case with... Um, Frank Nitty. Yeah, and they were in Arizona yeah. at this time, for yeah. sure. So... Man, yeah, maybe the mob, maybe someone went to the Godfather down there and was like, these girls are disappearing. He's like, I'll, I'll, I'll get some guys to do it. The making him go to California and to pretend to be an FBI agent doesn't make much sense to I me. I know, except for he does have a record of detention in San Diego during this time. And yeah. no, he has no other reason for being in California. So right. he could have gone on his own and flyered yeah. and pretended to be an FBI agent. Like, I... I totally could have done that. Yeah, he right. doesn't seem to be that ambitious to right. me. He's like, I want to pretend to be a greaser. Right. Is that okay with everyone? Can I just pretend to be a greaser? Like, I just want to be like, you know. Cool. Cool. A I, tough guy. I don't know if that equals pretending to be an FBI agent and flying to California. I feel like he doesn't. Yeah, that right. seems very, out, like that doesn't seem, seems kind of out of character to me. Yeah. I mean, it seems like that would actually require a certain level of bravery and courage that he has never exhibited. Except for when he really put himself out on the line to win some gymnast, you know, championships back in the day. Yeah. So that's the life of the Pied Piper of Tucson. We used... The Life Magazine article by Don Moser titled The Pied Piper. Um, The other resources I used were Tales from the Morgue, The Pied Piper of Tucson series by Joanna Eubank for Tucson.com. And as always, Wikipedia, God bless you. (laughs) With your soft facts. Well, God bless you, Muriel. That was really, really drastic. And (laughs) RIP the Fritz sisters, RIP Aline. That's drastic as hell. I'm mad at you for telling me that story. Well, get ready because I think no. a lot of these Patreons are going to be really drastic. <laughs> oh, no. Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research and I did all the editing and post-production. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. We also draw and animate little bonus content cartoons for Muriel's Murders, which populate our social media feeds. You can find us at Muriel's Murders on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok. Our DMs are open and you can email us at murielsmurders at gmail.com. Please rate and review Muriel's Murders on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us grow. 
Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. Thank you to Ryan and Ryan at Campfire Media. And if you want more Nick and Muriel, check out our non-murder podcast, Hella in Your 30s, wherever you get your podcasts. On this last week's episode, Muriel and I took a quick, spontaneous vacation out to the beach and recorded our shenanigans, and it's a, it's a great episode. It sure is. Hope you all have a great week. See you next time. Bye. We're the hosts of Hella in Your 30s. This is a podcast for people of all ages, all about navigating this dystopian world we live in. <laughs> That's right. So every Monday we invite you into our living room or out into the world on whatever adventures we go on. Or into our living room for an adventure in our living room. <laughs> yeah, like having your wife challenge you to a great British baking show style competition in your own kitchen. That's right. Or maybe, you know, you want to know what it's like to volunteer at a food bank. Or maybe, uh, well, you know, you want to hear what it's like to foster kittens in the midst of a pandemic. That's right. Super easy. But giving cats medication is literally the worst thing in the world <laughs> okay anyways if you want to hang out with us find us every monday hella in your 30s wherever you get your podcast Bye. tomorrow's a new day let's order pizza